The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. We begin a new series on the book of Exodus. We will be taking several months uh, of Sunday evenings, likely into March, with the exception of the Christmas season, to walk through the story of Exodus from beginning to end. Now, this first week, I want to do two things. First, an overview of the entire book, and then a look at Exodus 19, verses 1 through 7, which gives us a great vantage point to see the whole story from beginning to end. So first, the overview. The book of Exodus could be divided into two parts. Chapter 1 through 18 focus on God's deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. And chapters 19 through 40 focus on Israel's encampment at Mount Sinai. Now, as we look at the first half of the book of Exodus, it moves quickly. As Dr. Rodney Ashlock says, the narrative action dominates This first section is filled with action and moves quickly from one unforgettable event to the next. This part one, scene one, starts with Israel's descent into slavery, details their oppression in Egypt, including Pharaoh's plan to murder all the sons born to the Hebrews. Scene two of this part, God delivers his future leader Moses through the adoption of Moses by Pharaoh's daughter. Scene three, God calls and prepares Moses in the wilderness of Midian from the burning bush to his return to Egypt. Scene four, God faces off with Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt through the plagues. And then the final scene, God is prying Israel out of Pharaoh's hand, plunders the Egyptians, crosses the sea, drowns the army of the Egyptians, and sustains Israel with bread and water. And as Israel walks off into the sunset, the curtain closes to this first part of the book, and it's tempting to think the end, story over, only to discover it's merely the intermission. The second section of the book of Exodus, which is easy for me to forget as a child because it was boring and slow, it it is. It's completely different, right? It moves at a much slower pace as the Israelites settle at the foot of Mount Sinai, where in the first scene of part two, God delivers his law, including the Ten Commandments as well as some civil laws. And then God takes six chapters to lay out blueprints for his future home, his, his tent, the tabernacle, where he's going to dwell with his people. He instructs them how to make the priestly garments, which are the garments of those who will serve at his home. The story moves so slow that not only does the reader grow impatient, so do the Israelites. For it took 40 days for uh, Moses to receive this story from God, and he was up there for so long that the Israelites wonder what happened to their leader, and uh, they begin to wonder if they might uh, return to Egypt, or uh, in fear and anxiety, they quickly fall back into idolatry. That's the golden calf incident. And they break God's law and his covenant. Moses returns from the mountain quite angry, 
but he intercedes for his people. God relents from his anger, and the covenant is renewed between God and Israel. That's part two, uh, scene two. And then scene three of, of this second part is, is the people repenting as evidenced by their generous contributions to the construction of God's tabernacle uh, and their eager willingness to follow his commands regarding the construction of the tabernacle to the T. And the book ends with God's glory filling the tabernacle, God dwelling with his people. God with us makes the true ending of the book. It's a better ending. And we know that the story has come to an end. So that's the overview. Now, tonight's passage is Exodus 19. And the text is right in the middle. And I chose it because when you're in the middle, you can look, you know, both ways. And if you start at the beginning, you can get distracted by all the activity at the front end that you forget what's happening at the back end. And if you just look at the back end, obviously it's going to be too boring. So... In Exodus 19, we get a bird's-eye perspective from the mountaintop, from Mount Sinai, to be precise. Let's read, let me read Exodus 19, verses 1 through 7 to you. On the third moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, to the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples." For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. So as the pivot point to the whole story of Exodus, this passage allows us to look back and remember what God has done for his people to listen presently and understand what God expects from his people, and third, to look forward in hope to what God promises to his people. So first, let's look back and remember, what has God done for his people in this story of the Exodus? Well, it's said right there in verses 3 and 4, God has dealt with the Egyptians, bore Israel on eagles' wings, and brought them to himself. Do you see it? Tell the people of Israel... You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So first, how did God deal with the Egyptians? Well, he dealt with their king, with their gods, and with their army. God confronted the Egyptian king Pharaoh, declaring, These are my people, Pharaoh, not yours, to boss around and to use, to use as you please. God faced off with each and every one of Egypt's major gods as well. And Yahweh went toe-to-toe with each of Egyptians' major gods. There was no contest. Yahweh beat them to a pulp. Round one of this contest was against Egypt's river gods of the Nile. Actually, it was a three against one, because metaphorically God is going up against Hopi, which is the river god of the Nile, Isis, the river goddess of the Nile, and Ram, the guardian of the Nile. And what does Yahweh do? Well, he bloodies them to death. 
And then there's several others. And he comes to the sun god, Ra. And what happens to Ra? Lights out as darkness covers the land. See, God knocked out each and every one of the false gods, proving that he and he alone is the one true God of all creation, not just the God of his people, but the God of all people. God dealt with the Egyptian army as well, wiping out the entire army in the sea so that Israel no longer needed to look over her shoulder, no longer needed to feel under the threat of of constant pursuit, for now they were totally free. And so God dealt with the Egyptians blow after blow. It wasn't even a close match. He knocked them out, the wicked king, false gods, angry army and all, so that his people may truly be his people, free to worship and serve him and to know with certainty that they no longer belong to Pharaoh, king of Egypt. But God was their new king, and he had a home for them elsewhere. So he dealt with the Egyptians. What else? He bore them on eagle's wings. He does this in two ways, financially and militarily. Financially, we recall that he not only delivered the Israelites from slavery, but he plundered the Egyptians of their wealth, taking their gold and silver and bronze. So Israel's not limping out of Egypt poor. They they are set up to succeed with real material wealth. God bore them on eagle's wings financially when he granted them restitution for their years and years of slave labor. Then he also delivers them militarily. He bore them on eagle's wings that way. When Israel's pinned against the sea, nowhere to run, Yahweh swoops down to protect his fledglings under the shadow of his wing and then fight and consume those who would prey upon his little eaglets. And so the Egyptians are consumed by the sea. So God dealt with the Egyptians, bore Israel on eagle's wings, and then sea brought them to himself. And as I've already mentioned, God's goal in the Exodus was not simply to get Israel out of Egypt, but to bring Israel into a closer relationship with himself. He was not simply delivering them, but he was delivering them for purpose. And Moses, as God's deliverer from the beginning of Exodus, had one message and one message to Pharaoh only. The Lord God has said, let my people go. Exodus 4.23, that they may serve me. Exodus 5.1, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me. Exodus chapter 8, verse 8, let my people go that they may sacrifice to me. See, that is the message. Let my people go that they may be with me and worship me. Yahweh brings Israel to himself here at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. And when he does so, he fulfills his promise to Moses all the way back in Exodus 3 at the burning bush where he said, I will be with you, Moses, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you to the Israelites. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship Yahweh on this mountain. Now, if you go back and reread chapter 19, verses 1 through 3, you'll notice it took three months to get into the wilderness of Sinai. And in those first two verses, the word wilderness is repeated three times. They encamped before the mountain, Mount Sinai, in the boonies, literally the middle of nowhere. And they remain in the wilderness and camped below Mount Sinai for quite some time, from Exodus 19 through Leviticus and into Numbers, 59 chapters of the Bible. And they won't leave Sinai until they break camp in Numbers 10, 
which will be a couple days short of just one full year of camping out at the foot of Sinai. So here, God, their true king, not only draws them away from the misery of Egypt, but he also draws them away from all distractions, and he meets with them alone in the wilderness, providing them food and rest. This is an exclusive, even intimate scene. God brings them together as one people, his people, and on this mountain, God himself will show up. The God of the universe, whom the heavens cannot contain, will draw close to his people. Well, not too close, or else he might consume them. And so he lands on top of Mount Sinai and allows Moses to be an intermediary. And Moses, his chosen servant, will function as God's mediator, going up the mountain to hear from God and returning back down the mountain to communicate God's expectations, his promises and his plans to the people. So looking back, God's done a lot for his people. He, he dealt with the Egyptians. He bore Israel on eagle's wings, and he brought them to himself for intimate relationship. Now, God not only wants them to remember what he's done, he wants that memory to motivate them to, to listen and to serve their new king, their true king. And that leads to our second question. What does God expect of his people? Look at it at verse 5. He says, obey my voice, keep my covenant. God expects his people to listen to him and to obey him. Now, yes, they are now free. But how are they free? What does it mean that they're free? Certainly it meant they're free from a wicked king who abused them and murdered their children and reduced them to animals with no rights, free from a selfish and determined ruler who was willing to bring destruction upon himself and upon his kingdom just to keep them under his thumb. And while their liberation meant freedom from oppression and freedom from injustice and freedom from cruelty, they were not free to go their own way. They were not free to do whatever they wanted to do. They were not free from just rule because they had a new king. New at least to their experience, though not actually a new king. This king was from everlasting. He is the king of kings, God himself, who has all power and authority. And as their king, he speaks to his people saying, Obey my voice, my covenant. Now notice, he not only tells them that they must obey, he tells them why. There's a very important word that comes immediately before his command. It's the word therefore. Therefore tells us the basis of the command. It tells us to go back and read what was said immediately before the command. In verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Based on that reality, now therefore obey my voice Keep my covenant. Covenant. So we must remember this entire scene here at Sinai is based upon what God has already done. What's my point? The point is, Israel's salvation came before their obedience. Obedience was not a condition of Israel's salvation. God's previously established covenant was the condition. God explains why he saved Israel back in Exodus 2, verses 24 and 25. It says, God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. 
And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. As the Old Testament scholar Peter Enns writes, the Israelites are not to keep the law in order for God to save them. They have already been saved. God has brought them out of Egypt. The law he now gives is the subsequent stage in Israel's developing relationship with God. It is what is expected of a people already redeemed. The people do not earn their salvation, but once saved, they are obligated to act in a manner worthy of their high calling. Well, this is always true of God's people. It's always been true in the Old Testament as well as the New. God's people are not saved because they're holy. Rather, God's people are saved in order that they may become holy. And so God reminds them they are to obey, to obey, not to get saved, but because they are already saved. How does this apply? We are to obey out of gratitude and love, not simply out of fear like the Israelites had done with Pharaoh. They obeyed Pharaoh simply out of fear because he had power. But Yahweh shows up and he says, unlike Pharaoh, I am going to use my power, my authority, not to take from you, but to provide for you. Not to harm you, but to protect you. And I'm going to deliver you so that you can live in a new kingdom, my kingdom, which is marked by true justice, tender mercy, steadfast love. So the words, now, therefore, compels God's people to listen to the voice of this new king, to obey his covenant, not just because he's powerful, but because he's good. And so we likewise listen not in order to earn our salvation, but because we are already saved out of gratitude and love. For the Exodus points to a greater deliverance that we have in Jesus Christ, not a deliverance from physical slavery in a location, but deliverance from spiritual slavery, sin and death. Delivers us into a new kingdom where God's rule is just and good. And we are giving freedom to live as we were created and intended to live. And he is going to make all things right. So Exodus 19, 1 through 7 enables us not just to look back and see what God expects from his people. It teaches us to listen and understand what God expects from his people, which is loving, joyful obedience to listen to him and to trust. Last point. Exodus 19, 1-7 also teaches us to look forward in hope to what God promises his people. There's another little word before God's command to listen to his voice and keep his covenant, and that's the word if. And if tells us the result of listening and obeying God's command. Look at verse 5-7. through seven. I'll read it again. Now, therefore, if... You will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. See, as Israel listens and obeys, God promises that Israel will shine. Shine as his treasured possession, as a kingdom of priests, And as a holy nation, 
These images are distinct, but they're not separable. All three images hold together as one because each image is a picture of the same people, God's people. I have three images of my wife in my office. Each picture captures something unique about who she is. One picture captures she's my beloved wife, another my friend, and a third the mother of my children. But all the pictures are of one person, my wife, Marty. The images simply show different sides of one person. Well, the same is true here about Israel. Israel is pictured as God's treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. So it's a misunderstanding to think, well, Israel could go one for three here or two for three. That Israel could be God's treasured possession, but not a kingdom of priests. That's a misunderstanding. See, Israel is first God's treasured possession. Look at verse five. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Notice God says, all the earth is mine. He's the creator of everything. Therefore, everything rightly belongs to him. But Israel was no common possession of God's. God calls Israel my treasured possession among all peoples. Well, how will Israel be known as God's treasured possession? In order to clarify what we mean, I want to first clarify what this does not mean so that we can understand what it means. Israel was not God's treasured possession because of a unique strength or beauty that Israel had. As helpless slaves, they were no stronger than other nations. They weren't bigger. They were a small nation. They weren't more moral. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had significant character flaws. The sons of Jacob lived with a deadly lie for years after unjustly selling Joseph into slavery, which Dr. Rogers has been teaching us about every Sunday morning. And throughout their history, you just see idol worship popping up in the lives of Israel's patriarchs and the Israelites themselves, which is why it's no surprise it only takes 40 days before the people grow impatient and construct a golden calf in Exodus 32. So nothing makes Israel stand out as uniquely deserving or beautiful. Israel's unremarkable, but God calls Israel my treasured possession among all the peoples. Imagine a man standing on the sideline of a soccer game and there are athletic boys running up and down the field, dribbling well, running fast, kicking straight, but the man remains silent as those boys play. However, there's one smaller boy, rather unremarkable on the team, yet every time the ball comes near this boy, the man cheers words of encouragement. And the boy listens, constantly glancing across the field to see if this man is watching. Now, who is this man that treasures this boy over the bigger, faster, stronger boys? Who is this man that cheers and causes the boy to glance back at him after every play? It's safe to assume that the man has a special relationship to the boy, maybe his father, most likely his father. Why? Because he treasures the boy over the other boys despite his weakness and disability and failures. And because the boy glances back to look for the light of the countenance of this man's face, like none of the other boys do. See, something very familiar is happening as we read the book of Exodus. Many other nations were stronger and bigger and more accomplished, but God's treasured, treasured Israel despite his weakness and failures. 
And God had compassion on Israel for being bullied and oppressed by a stronger, more beautiful nation like Egypt. Israel is treasured for sure, but not for anything uniquely beautiful about them, but simply because God chose to treasure Israel by adopting Israel and calling Israel my son. So when God calls Israel my treasured possession, God is not looking backward in this passage and saying, you've become my treasured possession because you were better than the other nations and because you obeyed my voice unlike them. In fact, in this passage, God is not looking backward, but forward. Israel already is his treasured possession, and now God is saying something additional. He's looking forward, saying, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among the people. What does this mean? God's language here emphasizes recognition among the nations, distinction among the people as God's. See, as Israel obeys God's voice and keeps his covenant, um, all the peoples will recognize and acknowledge them as God's treasured possession. The question in the text, or the question that the text is answering is not, is how will Israel be known and recognized as God's treasured possession, not why Israel was chosen as God's treasured possession. The language is future, not past tense. It points forward, not backward, and promises that if Israel will listen to God's voice and keep his covenant, they will be known, recognized, acknowledged among the nations as God's treasured possession. Brian Fickard said it this way, When the people of the world looked at Israel, they were supposed to say to themselves, Wow, these people are really different. I can't wait to meet their king. Then the text goes on and it gives us two more images to clarify how they will be recognized as God's treasure possession. They'll be recognized as a kingdom of priests, as a holy nation. Verse 6, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. This term, kingdom of priests, it's a bit difficult to figure out, for the priesthood in Israel had not yet been established. When established later in chapters 28 and 29, it was given to Aaron's sons from the tribe of Levi, not the entire nation of Israel. Yet here in Exodus 19, before the roles of the Levitical priesthood are developed, God promises to use his people Israel as a kingdom of priests with respect to the nations. What does this mean? Well, prophets were primarily God's representatives to man, declaring God's will, God's word. Priests were primarily man's representatives to God responsible to offer proper worship and service to him. So Israel, as a kingdom of priests, was to represent, demonstrate to a watching world how man was to worship God and serve God, how they were to live in a right relationship with God, to worship in spirit and truth, to serve God with loving obedience, loving him first and foremost, and and loving others as themselves, how to live in intimate relationship with God, who is at the center of their community, as demonstrated in the location of God's tent, which was in the center of Israel's camp, God with us. And they were to embrace, Israel was to embrace God's provision of forgiveness through trusting 
in the substitutionary sacrifices that were acceptable to God, that foreshadowed what God would do once and for all through Jesus Christ. So as a kingdom of priests, the whole nation was to demonstrate to the nations a clear, positive example of how to live in right relationship to God. The last image of their privileged calling was holy nation. By now you see uh, that these things are interrelated. They are connected together. Peter ends writes, both kingdom of priests and holy nation are to be taken together. If not as identical, then at least as clearly supporting each other. As holy and priestly, Israel is the means by which God will, as his plan unfolds more and more, bring the nations to have knowledge of him. It's not uncommon for troubled young adults to find their way into military service, usually at the prompting of a concerned parent or a counselor, and such a person shows up at boot camp, distracted, usually disheveled and undisciplined, and they enter the service troubled, without honor, oftentimes without self-respect. They're taken out of civilian life and in place into what might be described as, as a wilderness of sorts. But ten weeks later, when loved ones show up for the commencement exercise, they often don't recognize the transformed person marching around before them because something remarkable has happened. They, they've been set apart for a holy purpose to represent their country and fight for her glory. And it changes them. They're no longer seen as the troubled kid from Pequay, but that finely dressed soldier who represents their country's best, its glory, its power, its blessings and freedom. See, something similar is happening here with Israel. God delivered troubled Israel, who was weak and without honor, and he takes them into the wilderness to make them into something remarkable and transformed, made his precious treasure. No longer treated as animals, but regarded as representatives of the king of kings, as as a kingdom of priests. And they are set apart for a holy purpose no longer seen as troubled slaves from Egypt, but a holy nation who represents their king's glory, power, blessing, and goodness. See, God is making his expectations for Israel plain here, his intentions plain. Israel has favored status as a treasured possession, as a kingdom of priests, as a holy nation, so that he might make his glory known among all nations. That's God's end goal. And it's in sight from the very beginning of the book of Exodus. See, God doesn't simply want to deliver Israel from oppression, from oppression in a fallen world under a wicked king. Rather, he wants to work through Israel and make them holy so that through them people will look and discover a God who is a God of grace and mercy, a God for every nation, tribe, language. And he's come to make all things that are wrong in this world right. Now we know that Israel will fail to demonstrate 
what living rightly with God looks like. But one from within Israel will show the way. And he will live as God's true son. And he will be perfectly holy. And he will be the righteous priest who offers perfectly acceptable sacrifices. And he will be Jesus. And he is the one whom we represent. How does this apply? What an honor. What an honor you and I have to be used by the God of the universe who holds us up on display and says, look at my people, my precious possession. I want, I want them to see you're precious to me, not because of who you are, but because of what I've done, how I've transformed you and made you glorious. As we go forth from here, may we go with that confidence, humble confidence, to be his ambassadors to a broken and hurting world who needs rescuing. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the story of the Exodus. God, I pray that as we walk through it over the weeks to come, that you would continue to open our eyes and our hearts, that we may see a God of glory and of grace who doesn't just rescue his people from sin and from oppression, but he rescues them to himself. That we might have an intimate, life-giving, vibrant relationship with none other than the king of the universe. And that as we realize that deliverance, you use us. Among the nations, that as people look at us, they say something's different. They live like they're a treasured possession, like they're royal property. Oh God, work in us in this way that we might be used by you to bring redemption and transformation to our families, to our community, and to this broken world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.